Well, we come today to the end of the book of Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up to Nehemiah chapter 13, which will be our text for today. You know, as I read through this text, uh, not only this week, but as I was preparing this whole series, I was sort of hoping all along that, that Nehemiah would end at Nehemiah chapter 12 rather than 13, because chapter 12 ends on such a high note. As you recall from last week, uh, we saw that, that chapters 10, 11, and 12 have the people in chapter 10 renewing the covenant that they made, uh, that Moses made, and that God gave through Moses as they heard the word of God read, and they, they gathered together and they said, look, we are going to commit to honoring and obeying our Lord. We're going to do this and that and the other, and they list all of the things that they're going to do, and they commit to that. And then in chapter 11, we see as Jerusalem is repopulated, because as you recall from the very beginning of the series, uh, Jerusalem was a ghost town, a, a wreck of a city, uh, completely decimated, uh, burned down from being destroyed in the exile through Nebuchadnezzar, and the people gathered together, and, and they were uh, vowing to follow God. Jerusalem was being repopulated. And then at the very end of chapter 12, we see this amazing celebration as this wall that was built in 52 days was dedicated. And as we see Ezra on one side walk around the wall and Nehemiah walk around on the other side, this wall being uh, strong enough to hold not only them, but throngs of people playing instruments and celebrating, and they gather together and meet together in the center where the temple was. What a joyful way to end the book of Nehemiah, but instead, we end today on a chapter that I, again, somewhat dreaded uh, uh, having to end on uh, since I began this series but which nonetheless is an important and fitting end to the book. Again, our passage is Nehemiah chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to follow along as I read. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gateskeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders 
And they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service." In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay your hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews, who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God for good. Well, I guess you can see why I wanted to end on chapter 12. It's a pretty uh, steep decline 
from an amazing celebration dedicating the wall to God and, and shouting for joy and praising the Lord to this. We see in verses 1 through 3 that the book of Moses is read again. And they find in this reading that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. And we, we, we see here that it says, on that day. Now that phrase there is not very precise. It's, it's vague enough so that we, we're not quite sure what day that is. It w- certainly wasn't the day that we just read where the wall was dedicated, but it was many days later. We know, though, just from the rest of this chapter, that whatever day that was where this book of Moses is read, it occurred after Nehemiah's first term of governor. So you remember Nehemiah, think back to when we meet Nehemiah, he is cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And if you recall, the cupbearer was a very important office. The cupbearer was essentially the closest uh, servant of the king. The cupbearer was the one that the king trusted with his own life. He would taste every morsel of food and, and every bit of wine that came before the king in order to keep the king from being poisoned. And so in that sense, as I mentioned, he was almost like a secret service agent, ready to give his life for the king. And that's what Nehemiah was. And, and when he got wind that Jerusalem had been burned down, that the gates had been burned and, and the walls destroyed, he went before Artaxerxes uh, with much fear and trembling, having prayed, and he, he pleaded with Artaxerxes, please let me go down to Jerusalem. It's my home. I've, I've been with you in Susa, the citadel, for a long time, but can I go back to my home and to my people and, and help rebuild the wall? And, and Artaxerxes at that time asked him, how, how long are you going to be gone? And you remember, uh, Nehemiah said, well, look, I, I am going to need lumber to build the house that I'm going to live in temporarily. So Nehemiah was saying to him, I'm going to be there for a while. And Artaxerxes gave him uh, permission to go down. So Nehemiah arrived, and and we just saw everything that happened. And what we know from this chapter, uh, when you see in verse 6, Nehemiah says, while this was taking place, we're talking about what happened there in in the beginning of verse 4, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. Well, we know that it's been then 12 years, because Nehemiah uh, went down to Jerusalem 12 years earlier. So he's been in Jerusalem for 12 years, working, helping the people to understand what, it, what their calling is, helping to, to guard the wall and, and set up uh, administration and, and probably again repopulate the city and do all the things that he's been doing from 445 to 433, after which he left and went back to Artaxerxes for a while. We're not sure how long, but I suspect, given some other things that the chapter tell us, that it was probably about four or five years that he went back to the king and left Israel without his leadership. So he was back with Artaxerxes, and, and then he says, can I get permission to go back to Jerusalem, after which we will see the disaster that he finds. But what verses one through three, kind of this Uh, preempts us is that the people after sometime later uh, have the book of law of Moses read to them and no doubt what was read to them is Deuteronomy 23 verses 3 through 6 again they read the book of Moses which is the Torah the first five books of the Bible 
written by Moses. But in Deuteronomy 23, it says, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. So the people heard this read that no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, and they once again repented of this. And they said, okay, we're going we're gonna to turn back, and, uh, and it says, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now again, just to be clear, this was not some kind of racist thing going on, because as we know, if a Moabite or an Ammonite turned from their idolatry to follow the God of Israel, they were welcomed in. We know this because Ruth was a Moabite and she became a key person in the history of Israel. So what they're talking about are Ammonites and Moabites that are unrepentant and in idolatry, steeped in idolatry, they are not allowed into the assembly of God. Why? Well, if you go back and you read Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 23, what you see is what they're talking about here, that when Israel had escaped from slavery in Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness, some of you know this story, you've no doubt heard about Balaam and Balaam's donkey speaking to him, but what happens in that story is that the Ammonites refuse the people of Israel even food or water, people that are starving and in need of sustenance. The Ammonites refuse to help them, and the Moabites kind of do them one more, and they hire Balaam, who is a prophet, to prophesy against Israel and to curse them. And what we see in that passage is what is, what is said here, that, that God actually twists Balaam's words and makes him say things that bless Israel rather than curse them. And he, he keeps saying, look, I can't say anything else. God's making me say these blessings to Israel. And so we see here that God, because he loved Israel, turned these curses into blessings. Now, before we get into the main part of this passage today in chapter 13, I just wanted to point this out because uh, this section here, verses 1 through 3, doesn't really play much of a part in the rest of the passage. But that really struck me this week as I read once again that story. And I saw that God actually turned what was meant to be a curse on Israel into a blessing for his people. And I just thought about that this week. How, how many times has something happened to the people of God, has something happened in your life that you perceived as a curse, that you perceived as some trial or tragedy, and perhaps it was, but later in hindsight you see how God used that trial to bring blessing in your life. That's happened to me so many times in my life. And we see here directly that God literally turned uh, what was meant to be a curse into a blessing. See, oftentimes God brings us through hardships, things that the Bible would agree are trials and hardships. But through those trials and hardships, God brings blessing. And we can never say that God can't use a trial for good in our lives. 
Because all we have to look to is the cross. In all of human history, the cross of Jesus Christ is the worst thing that's ever happened in human history. We took God's son, the perfect unblemished lamb, the one person in all of human history who had never sinned, and we brutally tortured him and hung him on a cross to die, and there, that's where he absorbed the wrath of God. And yet, God took the worst thing that's ever happened in human history and turned it into the greatest blessing in human history. The worst event was also the greatest event. And that's what we see here in verses 1 through 3, is we are reminded again of all of the favor that Israel has been given. And so Nehemiah returns after being gone for again maybe four or five years. He returns, and what does he see? Well, I want to break this down, chapter 13, into three things to simplify it. Nehemiah sees corruption in the house of God. He sees corruption of the Sabbath day. And then he sees corruption in the lives of the people. And I think each one of those kind of flow into the next one and lead into the next one somewhat. So what does he see? First, he sees corruption in the house of God. One of the things that I thought is just, I tried to place myself in the position of poor Nehemiah. Here's a guy who left the palace of palaces, left this beautiful area uh, of the world at that time, the richest area of the world. He was in the citadel, the, this, what we would you know, think of as like paradise on earth uh, of Susa, and went down to a burned out city full of rubble to help his people. And there he worked and worked and toiled for 12 years, left and went back for four or five years and came back and everything had fallen apart. I just try to place myself in his, I, I can't imagine how he felt, how he must have felt, how, how it must have grieved him to see what had become in his absence. And what he sees is horrendous. Because what he sees is corruption at the top. It begins with the priesthood in the house of God. Because what you see here is this priest, Eliashib. He was the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God. He actually ended up throwing out all of the things that belonged in that chamber. The things that were not only for the Levites and the singers, the supplies. He also threw out, as we see in here, the vessels the precious vessels that, that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple when he came in and forcibly removed them and destroyed the temple, those things had been graciously given back by Cyrus in the return. And here this priest quietly removes them from the chambers. He strips from the chambers what should have been in there. And what does he replace them with? Well, it wasn't good. He replaces them with Tobiah. And if you've been here throughout this sermon series, you know that Tobiah wasn't just anybody. Tobiah was one of Israel's greatest enemies. And he basically gives Tobiah this mansion, this huge chamber, this gigantic apartment, basically, a suite, in the temple itself to live. He moves in Tobiah's furniture, 
shoves all those things of the house of God out, and Tobiah begins living there. And Tobiah was an Ammonite. If you haven't been here, Tobiah was an unrepentant pagan who hated Judah, who was angry when he found out that that Jerusalem, that the temple, that the walls were going to be restored. He was angry about it and frustrated. He jeered at the people. When the wall was built, he was the one that said, you think that's a wall? If a fox jumps on it, it'll knock the whole wall down. Tobiah helped to uh, plot against the people. He threatened them. He plotted against Nehemiah to have him killed. And this is the man who is now living and occupying space in the house of God. When no Ammonite, we've just seen in verses 1 through 3, should even ever enter those premises. And now he's living in the center of the house of God. What in the world is he doing there? How does this happen? I mean, if you're not asking yourself that, you don't understand the gravity of the situation. Well, we see how it happens. Notice that Eliashib was related to Tobiah. We also see, if you read back in Nehemiah chapter 6, it says, moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him. That's how it happened. Insiders trading, uh, cronyism, political corruption. Uh, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Who knows what Tobiah had done for this priest? But how does it happen? Do you think that Nehemiah left and the day that he went back to Susa, all of this occurred? That, that immediately everything was tossed out of the temple and Tobiah moved right in? Maybe, but I doubt that. I doubt that. I suspect that it was a slow and gradual process, one that began small and ended up with that being the final picture. And I thought about the way sin enters the life of a Christian. How is it that a heinous sin, something that a Christian could look at objectively and say, God hates that, and I hate that as well. It's something that I hope I never do. How can something like that end up at the center of a Christian's life, occupying a a central chamber of that Christian's heart? I told you a while ago of of an associate pastor. Uh, He was essentially had everything going for him. He was, uh, had just been hired as a full-time associate uh, at a church uh, that, that my, uh, one of my friends is, is senior pastor, and uh, he was uh, preaching every so often, every five or six weeks or so, he would preach, and he was running a bunch of ministries in the church, and uh, had a wife, and had a brand new child, was a young man, and was preaching every week, uh, working at the church every week while he was pursuing a PhD in Hebrew studies. All of a sudden, after preaching there for 
an entire year and doing all of this ministry, it came out that over the course of that year, he had had an affair with 10 different women. When it came out that he had an affair with 10 women, he then was challenged about it and, and uh, challenged to repent and come back to his wife and leave these women. And he denied the faith, walked away from the church, left his wife, is no longer a pastor, and has walked away from everything he had. How, how does that happen? <laughs> well, we see it happen in David's life, don't we? earlier. I think it happens gradually. How does a man leave the wife of his youth and his children for another woman? How does a, a family uh, end up uh, being a member of a church and, and essentially never coming back Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, missing church every week? It happens gradually. I think a Christian's worst enemy of his soul ends up occupying a spot in his heart a little bit at a time until eventually he looks at himself and he looks at his life and he says, how did I get here? How did this end up occupying this spot? One scholar puts it this way, it does not happen in a moment. Standards are lowered gradually and imperceptibly. Sin becomes known by another name. We accommodate at one stage of life things which earlier we would have been totally unacceptable. That's how great empires have decayed. The disintegration takes place gradually from within. That's how good characters are destroyed. That is how some Christians have been spoiled. By failing to see sin as Nehemiah saw it, the evil thing which ruins the choicest things are, by undetected infiltration, corrupting the best of lives. Remember, I mentioned repentance. Repentance, as I talked, is turning away from our sin and turning towards God. But, but if you remember that, that answer, what is repentance? Part of that answer is a hatred of our sin. Repentance involves turning away from the sin that we hate in our lives. How do you think Nehemiah responded? Well, we see. We, we see Nehemiah's anger. I don't think Nehemiah gave Tobiah a few months to find a cheap apartment. I'm pretty sure Nehemiah acted swiftly. He went in and he literally cleaned house. He threw out the sin that had displaced God. He tossed out Tobiah with his stuff and he brought back the things that belonged there. Repentance hates the sin, turns away from the sin, and replaces the sin with the things that should be there. Notice, in verses 10 through 14, that the devaluing of the house of God by the priest, now again, this happened per, uh, over time, and once Tobiah's in there and, and everything's been tossed out and, and he's living there, you notice here in verses 10 to 14 that, that it leads to the devaluing of the work of the house of God by the people. The people stopped bringing, once they knew, well, there's no more tithes being stored in this chamber, the Levites aren't being supported anymore. Tobiah's in there. Why in the world should I give to this anymore? There's no more tithes being offered. The, the Levites and the singers are not supported. And notice in verse 11, Nehemiah just flat says, why is the house of God forsaken? And that brings us back to Nehemiah chapter 10. Because what we see, again, in that section 10 to, to 12, we see all of these positive things happening. And when you go back to Nehemiah chapter 10, they almost say verbatim what they're not going to do 
and it's what they've done. Chapter 10, verse 39, they sum up everything by saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give our tithes, or we're going to support the priests, we're going to support the Levites, and they sum it all up by saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 39. Chapter 13, Nehemiah sees all this going on, and he says, why is the house of God neglected? I thought you said you're not going to do that. The very thing they vowed not to do is the very thing they do. And notice that this one sin, which started at the top, flows into another. That the corruption of the house of God leads to the corruption of the Sabbath day. We see this in verses 15 to 22. We see in those days, I saw in Judah, people tre treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on the donkeys, wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. They're trading with the Tyrians. Again, this is something that the people explicitly vowed not to do in chapter 10. Nehemiah 10, 31 if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. The priest first allowed God to be displaced from the temple, and now the people are allowing the situation around them, the, the actions of their neighbors, to displace God on the Sabbath. Sabbath rest, which God commanded the Israelites to honor, has been abandoned. Why? Well, because people want to trade with us. I mean, the Tyrians are over here. They, they don't want to honor the Sabbath, and they'd like to trade, so why not? What difference does it make? I've traded with them all week. What, what's one more day? Notice here in verse 16 that the complete neglect of the Sabbath was not only happening sort of in these or outskirts somewhere. It wasn't, it wasn't some little band over here way far away from Jerusalem that was kind of secretly negotiating in this trade. It was happening right in the city. Nehemiah sees right in front in the shadow of the temple, the house of God, blatant disregard for God's command to rest on the Sabbath. One scholar says this, throughout Judah and even in Jerusalem, the Sabbath is turning into a market day, a day of work, the making of money and the convenience of commerce trump the worship of God. You know, I know that, uh, <clears throat> I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't alive 50 years ago, almost, but I would imagine 50 years ago it was probably a little bit easier for Christians to set aside whatever they may have been doing the rest of the week to worship on Sunday morning. Because as, as I've been told, 50 years ago or so, uh, pretty much everybody did that. That pretty much all the stores were closed. That pretty much all of the little leagues didn't play games. All of the things that we see going on today weren't really happening then. And so it made for a convenient uh, reason for Christians to also not do anything and go to worship on Sunday. Well, what happens when that stops being the case? What happens when our surrounding society says, you know what, we're going to keep uh, doing business on Sunday. We're going to open up our stores, we're going to, you know, I'm, I, I, uh, you know my, my kids have all played Little League sports, it's amazing uh, just how little bit of uh, thought ever is put in, well really no thought is put into playing games on Sunday. 
championship games, whatever, uh, league games, it doesn't matter. Uh, the notice is put out, there's not one question or even thought that somebody whose kids are playing in this might be going to church on Sunday. Uh, in which case, Michelle and I always have to notify the coach and say, look, they're not going to be able to play this game and that game because they're going to be at church on Sunday. Oh, we're really sorry that you're not going to have them for this game. Yeah, well, we are too. <laughs> I wish they could have played in it, but they can't because they have to be here on Sunday morning to worship. That's more important. What Christian will we do when our society uh, forgets more and more about the Lord's day? Will we forget about it? Will our priorities just become the priorities of society? That's what happened to Israel. What did these people who were trading, uh, what did they prioritize on the Lord's day? What did they teach their children to prioritize on the Lord's day? Nehemiah, again, acts decisively. He reminds them that profaning the Sabbath day was exactly what brought disaster on Jerusalem before. No doubt, he pointed them to Jeremiah 17. Thus said the Lord to me, go and stand at the people's gate by which the kings of Judah enter and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives. Do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath. Don't do any work. Keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffen their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. But if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and don't do any work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of the city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall be inhabited forever." But if you don't listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. Nehemiah comes and he sees what's going on and he says, don't you remember what happened to you? It was in part by profaning the Sabbath that this, this destruction that we just recovered from happened in the first place. I leave and you're right back to doing this again. Well, we see that corruption in the house of God that led to corruption of the Sabbath ends up leading to corruption in the lives of the people. Verses 23 through 27. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and I cursed them. I beat them, I pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Didn't Solomon sin on account of such women? He was so beloved by his God, God made him king over all of Israel, and nevertheless, Foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil by marrying foreign women? Again, 
This is proof, I think, that Nehemiah, not only, not only the kind of entrance of Tobiah into the central chamber of, of the temple, which I think probably took a long time to happen, but I think this also is proof that Nehemiah was gone for probably at least four or five years, if not longer, because what's happened was these men have married women from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, and not, but not only have they married them, they've had children with them, and now the children that they've had with them are being taught the language of Ashdod and not the language of Israel. So all this time has passed, and, and this is what he sees as the fruit of what's happened. And again, again, this is something that in Nehemiah chapter 10, they vowed they would not do. Do you see this pattern here? Nehemiah 10, we will not do this. Nehemiah 13, they do it. Nehemiah 10, we will never do this. Nehemiah 13, they do it. Over and over again, the exact thing they say they're not going to do, by the time he returns, they're doing that very thing. Nehemiah 10, 29, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. They're marrying again, and they're marrying the enemies of the Jews. One of the things that stood out to me here is, again, something that you don't see too often, but you see here, which is that importance of passing on the language to the next generation. You don't, you don't see that. Oftentimes you do see the sort of the corruption, general corruption of marrying foreigners and who, who, are, who are pagans and, and letting that, that paganism influence you. But, but what Nehemiah sees here is that the children are learning the, the language of Ashdod, but not the language of Israel. Now, if we think of that in, in our own context, that, again, this isn't so much just they're learning a foreign language, it's that they're learning the idolatry of these pagans who have not converted. If we think about this in our own context, our children, and even ourselves, but specifically if, if you think about it in, in terms of a one-to-one -one correlation with this passage, our own children are taught every day the language of our culture. And not, not, not just by teachers and instructors, but, but just by being in this culture by watching TV, movies, being with their friends, all day long they are essentially pummeled with the language of the culture around us. Are we, as Christian parents, passing on the language of Christianity to our children? Are we taking the time to, in all kinds of ways and in all situations, instruct them on the language of scripture, the language of Christianity, to counter the language of the culture. I fear that if we don't share with them intentionally what the Bible says they are, who the Bible says God is, who the Bible says he has created them to be, who Jesus is, what he did, what God expects from them, what it means to follow Jesus, all of these things, they're going to be taught a corruption of those things in some way by our culture. It's interesting uh, that the other night, we have a, 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 a Bible study on Thursday nights uh, for the older, the three older, Luke, Andrew, and Isaac. And uh, we do ver various things in the this, in this study, but Luke, uh, one of these nights after the study, he asked me, uh, 
simple question of, uh, he said, God, Dad, if, if God foreknows everything, then how do we have free will? As I said, I, it was a quick answer. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, it was a tough question, right? He said, I don't understand how that works. How, how can God foreknow everything and somehow I have freedom of choice? It seems that if God knows what I'm going to do, how am I free to do otherwise? I must do what God knows is going to happen in the future. How can that be? How can those two things? Now, I honestly, immediately, sort of internally reacted with some fear. Oh no, Luke's turning away from the faith. I've got to stop this, right? My immediate reaction was almost one of, let me just quickly give him a good answer that shuts it down so he doesn't ask these questions anymore. But the Lord overcame that, and I said, Luke, that is a great question, and you know Christians have been asking that question for millennia. And you know what, Luke? People have answered that question, believe it or not. He said, really? That's, that's uh, well, first I kind of gave him my answer, and I said, listen, here's what we'll do. I've got a great courses that's taught by an expert on medieval theology and philosophy. He goes, he, he looks at the philosophy and theology of, of saints like uh, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. And, and how about you and I start listening to that every day? He said, that's great. I would love to do that. And in that great courses is a lecture where the guy goes in a very detailed way through what an, a, a, a church father, Boethius, did to explain how God can know everything and we still have free will. We listened to that lecture. And Luke said, That's, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Now, I don't know if Luke will uh, turn from that or he'll maybe, I'm sure, have other questions later. But you see, we don't have to be afraid to teach our children the language of Christianity. Because, believe it or not, any question that they have has been answered in the past. Brilliant theologians and uh, Christians from the past have answered probably every question that they are going to ask. So even if you don't have the answer, you can find it. Nehemiah, notice he curses them. He doesn't curse at them. He, he doesn't... Uh, throw cuss words around, it means that he brings down on them as he's beating them and pulling their hair. This is symbolic. He's bringing down on the people the words of the curses found in the covenant that they had just renewed in chapter 10. They said, if you go back and read chapter 10, we are going to stand under the curse of God too if we don't do this. Nehemiah brings those curses to bear. He brings them down on them and he reminds them of Solomon, God's beloved king, who was given so much by God, just as these people who nevertheless abandoned God and replaced God in his heart by pagan women. The book of Nehemiah ends on a weird note. Because after all of this anger and sin, you read chapters, or verses 30 and 31, and it says kind of good news, thus I cleansed them from everything foreign 
I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O God, for good. It's kind of a, a bland note to end on. It's not very triumphant. It's not praising God. He, he just lists some reforms that he makes, and then he prays one last time. And that's how Nehemiah ends. It, it ends with reform, but the the feeling that you get as a reader is, for how long? For how long will this reform last? It never lasted before. Will all of these things last? That's the question. Nehemiah was there for 12 years, bringing all kinds of reform, and in just a few short years after he left, the whole thing fell apart again. Because what we find out when we read and get to the end of Nehemiah is that the world needs someone else. See, Nehemiah ends on purpose with chapter 13 because Nehemiah ends with us longing for another. What we see in Nehemiah is that even Nehemiah isn't the solution. The people of Israel don't need a Nehemiah because Nehemiah cannot bring lasting change. The people of Israel need not an Eliashib who's going to bring Tobiah into the temple. They need a truly righteous priest. They don't need a Solomon who's going to marry foreign women. They need a truly righteous king. They need someone who can bring lasting change to the people of God, change that will last forever. Notice Nehemiah, the final line is Nehemiah's prayer, remember me, O God. If you notice, he prays that a lot. What is Nehemiah saying? When he says, remember me, O God, remember the good deeds that I have done. Is Nehemiah praying, if you will, a selfish prayer? Is he saying, God, I know these people are bad. I know they're sinful. I know they've fallen away. But God, please, when you bring judgment, remember all the good things I've done. Leave me out of it. I don't think so. I think what we see here is Nehemiah acting as a mediator. Nehemiah is saying, Lord, please remember the righteous things that I have brought here and not the evil deeds of the people. Please spare them for my sake. There are two exceptions to this. Nehemiah 13, 22, you see him issue a spare me. <laughs> please spare me. And in Nehemiah 13, 25, you see him say, Lord, remember them in judgment. In those two prayers, he is asking God to spare him the judgment and to judge the people who have been wicked. But then it ends. And you see, it ends with God's people still awaiting the righteous king. The one who 400 years later would come on the scene, and what would he find? He would find corruption in the house of God, corruption on the Sabbath, and corruption in the lives of God's people. And interestingly, what was one of the first things Jesus did when he came on the scene was he entered the temple and cleansed it. He went in and threw out the money changers, and he reinstituted the godliness that should have been there when he walked in. He cleaned house. And Jesus stood as the mediator of the people. He prayed, Lord, please remember my righteous deeds and not their sin. There was one difference between Jesus and Nehemiah. Well, there were many differences, but when you look at Nehemiah's words, 
Jesus, where Nehemiah prayed, Lord, please spare me, our Lord prayed, spare them, Father. Where Nehemiah prayed, remember them in judgment, our Lord Jesus prayed, Father, please pour out your judgment on me. Nehemiah 13 ends by pointing us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, who would not only cleanse the temple, but would be the temple, God with us incarnate. It points forward to our Lord Jesus Christ, who would not only be the perfect priest, but also the sacrifice for our sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this word. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that it does not end here. Thank you that your word ends in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem where we will be with our Lord forever. And we pray, Father, that you would impress upon that our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.